what clothing was banned in your school? Like in your high school, what, what clothing were you not allowed to wear? I went to school in Utah, so you'd figure like all of it was banned, like except for cult attire. But mm-hmm. uh, spaghetti straps, I, I think it had to be like something like two fingers wide. Mm-hmm. The girls had the fingertip skirt rule. Um, so the skirts had to be past your fingertips? Yeah, I think the guys was just gang stuff. Like, I mean, I, like, I don't, I have no, I don't think you could have gotten away with like drug or tobacco or alcohol references. Like, I don't think that would have flown either. You couldn't wear a hat mm-hmm. indoors. I don't think. Again, yeah, that was this- the same. Now that you mentioned, you couldn't wear a hat indoors in Colorado either, which just seems ridiculous to me now. Or maybe it was in class. I can't remember which one it was. Like, I remember a bunch of kids printed out like a. Uh, I went to school in Park City, so they had like PC DC jerseys, which stood for the Park City Drinking Club, but the teachers didn't know, and they used to wear the PC DC jerseys around. Other students actually had their own merch. <laughs> I don't think you could buy it. I think they like got them printed. They were basketball yeah. jerseys done in Steeler colors, but with like the ACDC font. That's a very proactive high schoolers. Thinking back on it, yes, and none of them were particularly proactive adults. In retrospect, I was like, that thing was kind of cool. People used to like wear it going cliff jumping and stuff that you do in mountain towns. Yeah. You see one on Grailed? You buy it? That'd be so cool. It's like one of 12, you know? I mean, there's... <laughs> Limited there's edition. Very very little market value, but a whole bunch of uh, sentimental value, I suppose. Same at Arapaho High School in Colorado. You, you couldn't have spaghetti straps or short skirts, or you, you couldn't have your pants sag either. That they would... Uh, there was like a roll of like jute rope in the principal's office. If your pants were sagging that he would uh, cut off a string of it and you would have to use that as a belt. Most banned though was uh, maternity wear. You could not be pregnant at my high school. They would disappear you like pretty much immediately. Put you in like WITSEC or what? Uh, no, they would like shuttle you off to the, the problem kids school, which was uh, called options. I don't remember people being pregnant in my high school, so maybe they did the same they thing. They disappeared them. Yeah, there was someone that I knew that got pregnant. And then as soon as she started to show like a little bit, she just wasn't there anymore. There was this one high school we played in like real out there in Utah in baseball. They would wipe us. They were really good at baseball. Um, but they also had a pretty strong teen pregnancy. Uh vibe which was strange because it was super LES but like you'd go play games in uh in Vernal and there would just be like uh children in the stands cheering for her parents would you say that they were good at scoring yeah I mean I guess they were I mean they were like they I cannot stress how beat the shit out of us they beat the shit out of us getting one past the catcher I uh, the longest home run I ever surrendered was was one thousand percent in Vernal, and the dude like hit home, and like when came across, ran over toward the stands and gave his like little kid a kiss on the cheek, which was a phenomenon I was not expecting.
Welcome back to Heddle's Blowout. My name is David. I'm Reed. And we're talking denim history, as we have been for the last three months, and likely will be three months from now. I'm personally looking forward to the denim history singularity when we get to 2020, and we have to discuss this podcast and its impact on the history of denim. Undoubtedly large. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the, the Ouroboros continues of like, we're influencing denim history while discussing denim history while influencing denim history. It's like a, it's like a looper effect. Our genes are slowly disintegrating while we're, we're talking about we them. We can't make contact with the podcast while, while we're <laughs> there. But where do we leave off? After World War II, there was a large cohort of disaffected and disillusioned veterans returning home that didn't want to assimilate into the world of middle-class puritanical values. They instead turned to experimenting with drugs, sex, motorcycles, and free verse poetry. The through line here, though, was a universal appreciation for hard-wearing, utilitarian work clothing, and denim in particular. Motorcyclists wore jeans, leather jackets, and work boots for protection while riding their bikes, and beatniks wore jeans and t-shirts as a rejection of materialism and embracing the honesty of working-class proletariat style. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? Did you hear that? I did. Well, that's what we're talking about today. Blowout. So we spent a good bit of time last week talking about how the beat generation pushed the boundaries of American sexuality, but the majority of post-war America was doing a great job of fucking the old-fashioned way. According to historian Landon Jones, almost exactly nine months after the end of World War II, quote, the cry of the baby was heard across the land. We're talking about the baby boom and its subsequent boomers. Ever heard of them? Do we think this is just like legend that like nine months later, like just straight up nine months later, hospitals were filled with, with expectant mothers? Or is there like documented evidence that? I got some data. I got some stats. You got some stats? I got some stats. Also, why do why is it like? I guess power in numbers is like is where the pride comes from. Mm-hmm. But that's just like it, it seems hard to stand out. A lot of boomers. As an individual uh, in the baby boomer generation. Yeah, I mean, it's just like every year there's just there's just millions more of you. <laughs> I guess it's the same for us now, just based on sheer volume. But yeah, everyone's a millennial. We outnumber the boomers now. We're scaling things back, though. We're doing our job to not do what they did. I don't know if it's our job or if it's good, but we're, but just not, having, not, we're not having kids. To not do what they did, to not have uh, any generational or I- any wealth, <laughs> to not be able to buy houses, not be able to get careers. Not a ton of generational pride, to be honest. But, I mean, the, the, the spawning of the baby boomers was from America entering some good times after nearly two decades of either war or economic depression. After the war ended, the GI Bill, growing domestic manufacturing, and labor unions allowed many, many more people to get educations, buy a house in newly developed suburbs, and afford to start a family. Which, you know, all that we discussed to much greater detail in Episode 7, The Rise and Fall of Made in USA, which I encourage you to check out if you haven't listened to that one yet. Just for context there, imagine what it's going to be like once uh, what we're currently experiencing lets up. I mean, who knows if it's ever going to, but it would be pretty cool if it did. What in particular are you referencing? You know, just... Only because there's like 34 things that we're, we're currently experiencing. Like, the pandemic? 
Um, governmental instability and like stochastic right-wing violence, then uh, global warming, um, massive wealth inequality, uh, healthcare inequities. What else do we have here? A uh, unending uh, military-industrial complex and a completely like, broken and dysfunctional criminal legal system. Yeah, um, although. Those things sort of created the baby boomer generation, at least the military industrial complex did. I mean, it's just like they. And then they, then they really perpetuated the criminal legal system uh, dysfunction. So. Yeah, we're basically living in the hangover of the baby boomers. Both the movie and just the state of. <laughs> the hangover, yes. Hungoverness. But yeah, I don't know if any of those things are ever going to end, like, well, we're still alive, but it would be pretty cool if it did. And I imagine a lot more babies would be born. If they don't, they'll probably take us out. So <laughs> really only have one shot for this one. It's like uh, the deep impact. Uh, but yeah, I imagine a lot more babies would be born if uh, those things didn't exist anymore or we were able to solve them. Because, you know, like a lot of people I know, myself included, are afraid of having kids to just be like, let's, let's just wait and see how this pans out. Let's, let's just see how that goes. Yeah, when they're 14, explain, explaining to them what it was like when the polar ice caps existed. <laughs> Antarctica was a place that was not a tropical destination. Before we're all living in Kevin Costner's water world. And, uh, yeah, like what, yeah. If you're, what if your child is the one with the map on its back? Yeah. Instead of paying for braces for your kids, you have to pay for gill surgery. Yeah, just like things that like the webbing, webbing <laughs> plastic surgery, that becomes just the shit. It's like the aquatic ape theory comes. Do you remember when the internet believed that that mer people like mermaids existed for like a night? Do you remember this? No. Was this like the clown thing that happened like a few years no, ago? Animal Planet aired this documentary called Mermaids. Like, do they exist or some shit? And it was like a complete fake thing. But they presented all this insane evidence and there was like a night where like they like called it the aquatic ape theory about how there was divergent paths of evolution and Twitter was just like enraptured and no one knew it was fake. This was earlier, early ish. This is like middle-aged Twitter. It's like 2013 maybe. And people just were like mermaids are real for a solid three hours. We were all, we were on the mermaids are real train. That sounds nice. That sounds like a nice place, like a nice vacation to go to on the internet. Like I understand all the problems with the previous administration that folks have, but like there were evenings when we could get distracted by a fake mermaid documentary. Just remember that. Mm -hmm. but, uh, just some numbers on baby boomers. Back to I get my uh, numbers. Our favorite generation. How large and unprecedented they were. So like. In 1946, 3.4 million babies were born in the United States, which was the most in history. But that record would be broken every year for pretty much the next 18 years uh, until 1964 when it tapered off. That was 76.4 million people born in that period, which is almost 40% of the entire U.S. population at the time. Just like the Beats and the Bikers, though, the kids being raised in these cookie-cutter suburban subdivisions began to resent them. And they looked to what was their home's natural antithesis, the Beats and the Bikers. So the imagery surrounding both groups was only growing in popular culture. If you had a chance to watch our riff-over special of the 1953 Marlon Brando movie, The Wild One, 
it does a pretty good job of demonstrating the broad strokes of the cultural divide that was happening in the 50s. That you've got these uh, reactionary small-town Americans versus bike-riding, denim- and leather-clad delinquents. Uh, I, I dug up a review from 1954 in the Washington, D.C. Examiner uh, that demonstrates what the thoughts were at the time of movies like The Wild One, or I guess specifically The Wild One. Uh, you ready for this one? Hit me with it. Brando, a chilling figure in Kramer's The Wild One. Producer Stanley Kramer's taste for a sharp slice-of-life screen material led him to a grade-A shocker in The Wild One, which opened a day at the Translux Theater. The film, starring Marlon Brando, is the screen version of Frank Rooney's Cyclist's Raid, the tale of a motorcycle-mounted youthful terrorist gang which took over a California town in 1949. Although it rises to hair-raising cinema spectacle, the whole of The Wild One contrives to add up to less than the sum of its parts. This is due to the fact that while the production poses the adolescent delinquent problem in brutal and suspenseful terms, it leaves it hanging somewhere below midair. If the ending is not an apology for having brought the subject up, it is at least a confession of not really knowing what to do about it. In its own indecisive terms, however, the Wild One tingles with terror over the tactics of the muscularly strong, mentally and morally weak, and purposeless young. As for Brando, it gives him a chance to give a masterfully chilling performance as a dangerous young marauder, stimulated by alcohol and jive music, and gnawed by a shapeless dream of power. Adolescent anarchy has seldom, if ever, looked so shuddery. The the sheer terror that just like a person using a road to travel on struck in the hearts of Americans is pretty wild. Yeah, the movie, like, it. they don't really do all that much. They fight in the middle of the street, but it's just a thing of the, the supremacy of the townspeople is challenged just for a hot second, and they can't handle it to the point where they, you know, form basically a lynch mob. Yeah. And, like, they fight each other. I think... Like someone's car gets hit or something in the beginning, but it's like ultimately like the dragon for beers, man. Yeah, pretty low collateral. I don't know. I I was still sort of shocked by like like Marlon Brando like spends most of his time at like a diner and gives a trophy to someone at the very end of the film Mm -hmm. and drinks coffee. It's like not super menacing. Even when he's drinking beers, he's just sort of like staring listlessly into the distance. Um, I just love the the phrase here, the tingles with terror over the tactics of the muscularly strong, mentally and morally weak and purposeless young. He was proud of that one. Yeah. He was like, I got a zinger. Nice alliteration here. Got off a zinger. Yeah, I didn't find anything in that movie to be really all that subversive, but maybe that just to say that the, the subversives won. That was like the era where... Where like the true insidious stuff was, I guess, uh, fully embraced, right? Like whether it was like uh, white supremacism or, or or things like that, and, and and sort of like just like these fringe movements, like rock and roll or motorcycles or these other things, which were absolutely not dangerous, mm-hmm. um, were considered radically dangerous. Yeah, it's like satanic panic uh, before that happened with. Um, you know, the, what is it? The parents against, you know, say, uh, rock music 
those Senate hearings they had with John Denver and Dee Snyder and stuff? Yes. It, it's, it's just like a precursor for that. Is You have movies like this, and even though I feel like the message behind this movie was somewhat more nuanced than what a lot of people took away from it, uh, it established a visual language for a mass audience of this dialectic where the bikers look really, really cool and to kids, but scary to parents. Um, but they don't really take a moral stance on who's right or wrong. It's, it's, it's much more muddled than that. Wild One was followed by the much bigger and more successful Rebel Without a Cause in 1955, uh, which was Warner Brothers' answer to it. It was starring James Dean as a similarly angsty youth who wore Lee Riders instead of Levi's 501s. And there's a, a direct through line here, at least for James Dean, because he, he personally rode a Triumph motorcycle similar to the one that Brando's character rode in The Wild One. And the, that movie was a huge commercial and critical success as one of the highest grossing movies of the year and also earned three Oscar nominations. Uh, so that one was seen by a lot more people. It was in color. It, it, it was another similarly like thinky movie, uh, despite, I think, the flattening that's happened towards the imagery that the movie created. Because it was just like basically like teens are terrible, but it's because their parents are terrible. Uh, and we should all feel bad is sort of the message of Rebel Without a Cause. They fuck us up, our mom and dad. Yeah. Have you seen it? Rebel Without a Cause? Yeah. I haven't. I saw uh, Giant East of Eden, but I haven't seen Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. I feel like we should maybe watch Rebel Without a Cause next. It's uh, Some of it's aged very well, and some of it hasn't, because like the a lot of it, um, it's fun to watch, or at least I, I looked up some clips of it, because uh, Tommy Wiseau from The Room just like took like copied whole sections of the movie and like reacted them in the room. So you can't really watch James Dean and the uh, rebel without a cause without just laughing at a Tommy Wiseau meme. That's amazing. But um, yeah, fun movie. Uh, rebel in turn though, was followed by jailhouse rock in 1957, which starred Elvis Presley as yet another delinquent youth, this time in jail on false manslaughter charges. But he has a golden singing voice because this was like a jukebox musical um, where the denim in question was his prison uniform. The, the teens thinking that the prisoners were cool was kind of a problem for some people. I mean, as you uh, continue down the lines of delinquents, if you have, you know, like motorcycle hooligans and then you have, uh, I think James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. It's been a while since I've seen it, but he's in jail for something in that movie. Um, and then you have, uh, like Elvis Presley kills someone in a bar fight and is in jail for a year in the beginning of the movie. But, uh, the parent teacher association found a, a review of jailhouse rock that called it a hackneyed blown up tale with cheap human values. I mean, that's just like a full stop hatchet job, but, uh, do you agree? I mean, Kind of, but not in the same for the same reasons. So is this like, is, fair enough. Is this the first time that teens have like an attainable vision of cool in America, pop culture wise? Yeah, I would say so. You might have baseball players before or something, but I'm just like trying to think like otherwise, like I'm, I'm just trying to think like, I guess like pop culture doesn't really exist until like the tens or twenties really. Mm hmm. And then it was sort of put on hold through the Great Depression and uh, World War II, at least as far as consumables go. And even if it was, there wasn't much to model after. Like, especially if you're young, there's not much you can sort of like style to make yourself look like 
I don't know, like Sam Spade or some shit. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is also before you had uh, nationwide uh, distribution networks for consumer goods. That you know, maybe the same movie would be able to travel around uh, everywhere in the country, but you wouldn't be able to buy the same clothes or the same like products. Uh, you would have to go with your local manufacturer. Um, when all that was changed after World War II. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, the the parent teacher association and parents and teachers in general really hated this stuff, and their uh, dig on Jailhouse Rock was far from the only backlash that we'd see for cool teen jeans on screen. We'll talk about that more in just a sec after this quick break. For thousands of years, man has cultivated the fruit of the Sapindus mucorasi tree to wash their clothes. The emperors of China knew about them. The kings of India knew about them. Now, you know about them. Petals Denim Wash is a hypoallergenic and non-toxic laundry detergent made from these ancient plants. Petals Denim Wash protect your fades like the royalty they are. Welcome back. And the parents strike back. There's one other thing that should be mentioned here is that the scale of denim production in the late 40s and early 50s ramped up significantly from its pre-war numbers. Levi's, for example, were only available east of the Mississippi until after World War II. And all the brands were capitalizing on denim's transition from work clothing to casual wear, which was a much, much, much bigger market. Um, But the parents, as we said, did not care for that really at all. Because of the aforementioned associations, wearing denim casually was sort of the equivalent of having a face tattoo. And it was banned from most schools and high-class establishments in the 1950s. Must have been a wild time. Sort of just, it's like, can I eat here? No, you're wearing jeans. Mm-hmm. Go back out there and get yourself some real pants, man. I guess when we were kids, like, I feel like it sort of disappeared because, like, tech bros or whatever can't put on a button-down shirt. But, like, I, when I was a kid, there were places where it's like you had to wear a jacket. Yeah. I remember going when I was, like, once or twice when I was a kid. We went to some place where I had to wear a jacket. Mm-hmm. And then they give you the loner jacket if you don't have a jacket. But they they absolutely look at you with disdain. Oh, yeah. I'm it's sure like, every uh, all the, the staff there is like, ah, oh, the loner jackets, he's in my section? No, thank you. Yeah, they avoid you, treat you like a pariah. That you are, by the way. Yeah. No. In reference to uh, you know the movies that we talked about earlier that made Gene seem cool, there was the, the anti-Gene movie, Blue Denim in 1959, which was sort of the equivalent of Reefer Madness, but for Gene's where wearing denim directly leads to teen pregnancy. I've got the uh, trailer here. Hello. In a few moments, you will see scenes from a motion picture whose subject matter is of utmost importance to every family, especially those with young people between 15 and 20 years of age. 20th Century Fox, in accents real and unrestrained, brings you the experiences of two real kids of today and treats them candidly with their innocence and curiosity in each other. The day before, they had been friends, children, playmates, kids in blue denim. Arthur, have you been with lots of girls? Oh, the regular amount for a guy my age, I guess. Is it 
This looks like a softcore, like Cinemax like porn. It would be? At least the beginning. They were in love. That's my read on it as well. That I would love to watch this With movie, but I can't find it anywhere. Like, if anyone listening, if you have a copy of 1959's Blue Denim or know where we can access it, please, please contact us. Email is blowout at heddles.com. Is this like one of those situations where the people who made it are so embarrassed that they've like tried to systematically destroy every copy the way that Lorne Michaels won't let the 1985 Saturday Night Live season exist? The one with like Robert Downey Jr. and Anthony Michael Hall? Yes, or like the uh, all those E.T. copies of Atari, um, or uh, Atari copies of E.T. that they buried in the desert. Yes. Uh, apparently this movie was on Turner Classic Movies um, a few years ago, and so if anyone TiVo'd it... Uh, oh, so this exists. Yeah, there's, it there's exists. A can, there's a can somewhere. Yeah, there's a can somewhere, but it's like not on DVD, it's not streaming anywhere. Laser it's disc. probably on yeah, Laserdisc or VHS. So in response to movies like Blue Denim, the denim companies themselves responded to the panic uh, by mounting a campaign that jeans were worn by upstanding and morally sound individuals. That uh, One example of this was a 1951 American singer, Bing Crosby, who was uh, known for White Christmas, uh, was denied service at a Vancouver hotel because he was wearing head-to-toe denim. Levi's responded by making Crosby a double-breasted denim tuxedo complete with a red tab and rivet boutonniere. Although I'm not sure he was the best example for Levi's point is uh, he abused his children, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, it might be here or there. It's here and there. But uh, I mean, there's just like a certain thing at this point where it's like, man, if there was someone you might have admired before like 1990, Mm -hmm. just like buckle up. Yeah, buckle up. Take take a deep breath. But we used to sell that tuxedo at union made or we carried it it didn't sell. nobody ever bought it yeah i should revise that i mean someone bought it there was this one dude who bought it for like an opera event david sedaris looked at that tuxedo before probably yelling at us yeah before he got canceled his cancellation was relatively recent and it wasn't a full-on cancellation it was just him saying like did you see that did you see that thing uh yeah, where he started, he was like trying to figure. He was like, he called it like an employee firing. Yeah, like a citizen's dismissal, where he thought that you should be able to fire anyone, like who's I, doing a bad job. I love his writing, but as someone who definitely worked uh, in a store <laughs> and helped him as a customer, he he was not the easiest customer. I'll just say, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, he definitely pushed you to your limits. He would always bring up experiences from either like past shopping experiences or different stores where they were doing it better or examples of how you were fucking it up in that manner. You know? David Sedaris has no chill. I mean, he was like, he would always joke around like through the entire encounter. But some of the jokes would be very cutting. Yeah. You know, or, or like he would just be like taking pot shots at someone in the next room and you'd be like, man, I don't. I don't know if they're out on the joke. Mm-hmm. What's going on? But yeah, no, he was, like I said, love his writing. I think he's a very funny person. He was he's a very, legitimately very funny person. I can just the, see how his conduct might drive someone to not provide the best service, I guess is what I'm saying, mm-hmm. as someone in the service previous who's worked in that industry. One of my favorite pieces of his is about uh, the Apple Pan, one of my absolute favorite restaurants in Los Angeles. And yeah, like, like my, my dad's favorite. 
he took yeah, that one. And my favorite burger in the world is the apple pan. And uh, David Sedaris like wrote an essay about his experience there and how much he disliked that because like, as you know, if you've been there, the apple pan has like notoriously gruff and like uh, haughty service where if you don't know exactly what you want when they walk up to you, they just walk away. Oh yeah, that's not, I I ate at the bar, so I can't really remember that when I went there. Oh, it's only the bar. There's yeah, only okay, a bar. So it's just that like looping bar. Yeah, but no like, one sits you or anything. You have to like uh, communicate with your fellow patrons about like wh- what you're waiting for, how big your party is, and then like eyeball a spot. Yeah, no, I really like my burger. I can see how that is not his thing. Yeah, and that is not the apple pan experience. No, and by the way, that's totally a fine shopping uh, tactic if that's what you want to do, but just like be prepared to wait. Yeah. For any of you out there who want to embrace that type of... Uh, that type of tactic. In the 1950s, if you could not get a double-breasted uh, denim tuxedo from Levi's, uh, they also made the uh, 1957 Right for School ad campaign that uh, promoted denim as being an acceptable thing to wear to class, and it had this like cartoon imagery of a clean-cut young man with school books and jeans, like walking towards a schoolhouse. You know what? What does this this image conjure up to you, Reed? It's like kind of take Ivy-ish, but like also sort of J. Crew 2011 minus the blazer. Mm-hmm. He's Jeans got some tassel better. loafers, it looks it look like. Yeah, you know. A little bit of like menswear meets workwear. It's not a bad look. Yeah, not a bad look. No belt, but th- that's fine. It holds up. Holds up the test of time. Better than that uh, weird little kid uh, like buckaroo suit that were <laughs> on sale for a quarter. Made out of Japan cloth? Japan cloth. So they ran this ad in newspapers all over the country, but it got a decent amount of pushback that uh, Levi's historian Lynn Downey notes that the company received a letter in response uh, to this ad from one woman in New Jersey that was, quote, well, I have to admit that this may be right for school in San Francisco in the West or in some rural areas, I can assure you that it is in bad taste and not right for school in the East and particularly New York. Of course, you may have different standards and perhaps your employees are permitted to wear Bermuda shorts or golf togs in your office while transacting Levi's business. Was this a sick burn in 1957? Maybe. Like, is she, is, is she dunking on Levi's? Yeah, it's like, oh, your your people look like shit while they're trying to sell their pants. It's, you would allow Bermuda shorts in your office. But just like also the dissonance of like they work at a fucking denim company. They're not going to be wearing Bermuda shorts. They're probably going to be wearing the clothes that they make. Yeah, this is like one of those things, too, when people are like, you know, like your, our freedom of speech is being trampled on. It's like. I don't know, man. I've heard some pretty wild shit recently online. And like, there was a time when people were like, putting jeans on children is transgressive. Will you please stop? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I don't have concerns, but it's just like one of those things where I'm like, man, this is like people were like seeing an ad for like just a kid wearing Levi's going to school looking like put together. I think that's the best adjective I could describe for this kid. He's put together. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely has like something he's going for because he's got a little cuff working. But they're like, this is this is the devil's business and will not be tolerated north of the Mason Dixon line and east of the Mississippi. Won't somebody please. 
Think of the children. Think of the children. Despite all the pushback, young people just kept buying and wearing jeans. A uh, 1958 newspaper article reported about 90% of American youths wear jeans everywhere except in bed and in church, and that this is true in most sections of the country. Even in New York, huh? Even in New York. Man, this woman, it took a year for this woman to just be fucking wrong. Yeah. That's a quick one. I mean, I guess that's not even that quick. In like the Twitterverse, it takes about like four hours, sometimes quicker. Yeah. As Fidel said, history will absolve me. Not her. (laughs) Not New Jersey lady. But uh, you can see why young people would turn to jeans because like you you watch. you know, these movies, you, you can't really buy a motorcycle as a high school kid. No, but I've seen Sandlot. Yeah, you can't really get your hand on uh, Acid or the Bhagavad Gita. Um, but you can go buy some jeans. That That's like the one thing you can do to, to stick it to the man or this more specifically this woman in New Jersey. And if you're already wearing jeans, you have a better chance of finding Acid. True, it's got that little pocket. Yeah, and just like people think you're cooler. It's like in Sandlot. Small shows up to the baseball field, and he just looks like a goober. And then he gives him the old hat and the glove that he keeps in his back pocket somehow. Uh, and then he shows up wearing jeans later. It's like, Smalls, you're one of them. And in four years, Smalls could have for sure found Acid. Yeah, Acid would have found him. It found one of the characters. Remember, he got really into the 60s, and no one ever heard from him again? <laughs> it was the one that got like dragged out of the pool. Um, Squints. Squints. Michael yeah, Squints, like, Doris. Married Wendy Peppercorn. That was one of my favorite movies as a child. I don't think you can tell. They give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and just putting like a tab of acid on his tongue. Full-on sexual assault that <laughs> scene hinges upon. Yeah. Hey, it's the 90s. Pretending to be the 50s. Things are different back then and back then. To be honest, they were. The controversial nature of wearing denim wasn't going anywhere. Uh, after the fifties, as uh, we mostly covered the you know mainstream like quote unquote white narrative of denim this thus far, but next episode we're continuing the story with part eleven denim in the civil rights movement and all the other people that are often forced to the sidelines of history and how they were the ones really like pushing a lot of the narrative forward. If you like this show, please help us out by dropping a review below. Just just swipe to the bottom and hit the stars. That that that. That's good for us. Um, you can also support us directly by shopping at shop.heddles.com and using the code BLOWOUT. And if you want to watch the Marlon Brando movie, The Wild One, with us, our audio commentary is live now. Any questions, comments, concerns, or you have a copy of the 1959 teen sex denim scare movie, Blue Denim, read what is our email address? Blowout at heddles.com. Yes. Spelled like blowout. My name is David. I'm Reed. And we will catch you next week.